Oh, hello. Sorry there, you caught me while I was uh, brushing my cap. The new cap, the VOX World merch, is uh, is well and truly on stream. These caps you get when uh, when you've been on the podcast three times. Uh, so far, one is shipping its way to Frank Schneider from Speakeasy. Another one is shipping its way to Karen Skates at Soundhound. And uh, I can't think of who else is close. I think Micah Coppins is close to making a third appearance. Um so yeah, they go. These are the VOX World hat tricks. I'm thinking about doing some kind of charity thing as well, where maybe I'll sell some and and you know send the proceeds to to charity. So yeah, let me know if you'll be interested in acquiring one of these gorgeously, I would say gold, yellowy gold, yold, I would say VOX caps. Uh, so welcome to VOX World. I'm your host as always, Kane Sims, and uh, today we have an epic show lined up to you with Alex Quinn, who is the CEO of Disruptal. Before we get into Disruptal, shout out to Deepgram and Symbol AI, our presenting sponsors of VUX World. Deepgram, if you don't know by now, you should do, is a industry-leading automatic speech recognition technology that is powering voice assistants and voice bots all over the globe, including, actually, it's powering products and companies have been built using the Deepgram APIs and the speech recognition technology. It is really impressive stuff. Immensely high accuracy. It, you, can be, you can retrain it based on your specific domain so you can even in, increase the accuracy. You can use it out of the box or you can retrain it it's up to you um you can it's incredibly cost effective and uh, yeah if you do reach out to deepgram they will do like a benchmark that will assess its technology against other providers and you know i'm sure that deepgram will come in very close if not up there as the best uh speech recognition provider that you'll find so do check out deepgram.com forward slash vux world that is deepgram.com forward slash vux world to find out more and our second presenting sponsor is Symbol AI. Symbol AI is industry-leading conversational intelligence technology. It is phenomenal what you can do with Symbol AI. And the crucial thing with it as well is that you have control and you can build this yourself using their APIs. And when I say build this yourself, what am I talking about? Essentially, you can make all kinds of use cases come to life with Symbol AI. You can do things like call tracking. You can do things like, you know, answer phone detections. You can do things like um, sentiment. You can do things like build agent assist capabilities so that your agents can get next best actions and things like that. You can do call summarizations. You can do speak diarization a whole bunch of stuff is possible with Symbol AI. So do check out Symbol AI, or Symbol.ai rather, that's S-Y-M-B-L dot A-I for more information, S-Y-M-B-L dot A-I. Uh, and finally, finally, I'll be running and hosting a workshop in, uh, well, a webinar in two weeks' time, March the 9th. Uh, and essentially what it's all about is, as you might know, Google Contact Center AI, CCAI, Google have made inroads with all kinds of different companies, establishing partnerships with some of the leading contact center providers. In fact, almost all of the contact center providers and also a bunch of companies who can help you implement this technology as well. And it is really setting itself up to be the default de facto call center AI solution for call center automa automation. A company that is really embracing CCAI and helping organizations and clients implement this kind of technology is Servion, 
And the workshop, a webinar that we're going to be doing on March the 9th is with Servion. And we're going to do it collaboratively. I'm going to be talking about the trends in the conversational AI space. I'm going to be talking about best practice when it comes to putting together your strategy. I'm going to be talking about kind of like things to watch out for, key considerations for designing and implementing conversational AI solutions. And then uh, Servion will walk you through a really straightforward demo about how to actually implement CCAI and get up and running with it. So do check out my LinkedIn profile. I'll put the links in the show notes to the webinar link. Uh, so do check that out. It's on March the 9th, and it's going to be your guide to implementing Google CCAI in your contact center. Do not miss it. Now, without further ado, please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Alex Quinn, the CEO of Disruptal. Alex, welcome to the Thank show. You. Thank you. Nice to be here. Very nice to have you. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Big fan already of Disruptal. Uh, since we spoke, uh, since I saw the announcement with TCL a few weeks back, I've been doing a lot of research. I've watched all your videos, and uh, I think the concept is incredible. It's kind of like taking technologies from lots of different places, rolling them all together, and making something that ultimately is greater than some of its parts. And so I'm excited to get into it today. Absolutely. It's really interesting because I remember when we had Sean Canungo on the podcast, probably about, I want to say about two years ago, one of the things that he pointed out was that when the web came about and then mobile came about, and you see some of the kind of applications that were built like Uber and some of the businesses that were enabled to be created because of mobile internet and stuff like that. What he said is that it was a convergence of a whole bunch of different stuff. It was GPS, it was high-speed internet, it was mobile devices, it was, you know, uh, high-resolution screens, it was, you know, connectivity, cloud computing. All this stuff comes together and a company like Uber can pull those individual capabilities and create something that delivers value. The, 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 the solution is greater than some of its parts. Is that a similar philosophy for you with Disruptor? Because you've got a whole bunch of different capabilities going on under the hood. Is that something that you, that you think about? Well, absolutely. Um, like smartphones came before them. We're seeing the next billion TVs come online being connected to the internet. And I see this as really the convergence of internet connected TVs, AI, you know, 5G will only um, kind of accelerate these trends. So I think that it's the perfect timing because of all of these different pieces coming together at the perfect moment. Mm, interesting. And for those that don't know, for some people who are like true hardcore diehard VUX world fans, they will probably come across Disruptor because I've mentioned you a couple of times on, on vlogs and stuff like that and in the newsletter. But for those that are not familiar with Disruptor, never heard of Disruptor before, explain to us what Disruptor is and what it does. Disruptel is really focused on applying machine learning to video content in a way that enables us to understand what's happening, who the people and objects and products are, and then being able to connect all those uh, various entities that we're detecting and recognizing to a knowledge graph. And this enables a variety of our products, including our voice platform. We have another product called Smart Screen. We have Gesture Control. So it's this kind of common machine learning infrastructure that creates new viewing experiences where people whether it's on a TV or another smart device, they can interact with their content. They can see what's happening, look up external information, uh, engaging commerce experiences, kind of all these interactions that typically you have to use a secondary device like a mobile phone for. We want to enable that natively uh, on the first screen. Mm, interesting. So first screen is the TV then? Yes, it, it's usually the TV, um, but really any smart device with a, a screen we want to be a part of. 
Uh, okay, so first screen as in the primary screen that you're engaging with, not the screen that you use when you're bored of the primary screen that you're engaging with. <laughs> yeah, the, the device you're viewing the media on. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Where did it come from then? Where where, where did this concept come about? Like where did the idea from Disruptal come from? Why, why, why media um, and entertainment? So I was initially working on gesture control, being able to interface with your displays using your hand movements. And... Um, what we created was super awesome. It accomplished everything that we set out to do. And so we had this like super cool medium of, of interface, but in terms of like TVs and other displays, there's really nothing to interact with because what we found out is the TVs didn't even know what was on their own screens. I mean, there's some kind of, you know, primitive ACR, which is doing the frame by frame fingerprinting. So sometimes, you know, the content being watched, but on a deep level, the TV has no idea the actors and actresses that are on the screen, they have no idea what's currently taking place. And in actually many cases, it, it may not know the content being played at all. So that's when we realized that there may be a larger opportunity enabling this and creating this, you know, visual awareness. And then gesture control may make a lot of sense as, you know, the mode of interface. But, um, you know, before that happens, you, you know, the only thing that you can interact with is a bunch of, you know, guide menus and volume bars and, you know, so that's, that's really where, um, our, our visual aware AI came from. Isn't it funny how typically and traditionally terrible TV user interfaces are? It's, it's funny. We've made a little bit of progress, but, um, in my opinion, like the, the iPhone moment hasn't really happened for TV. I mean, we've, we're, kind of got there. We, we're connected to the internet now. We have these apps, um, but nothing was really ever transformational. Nothing nothing happened all at once that made it feel like this is a different product than yesterday's product. It's just slowly evolved rather than revolutionized, in my opinion. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? And it's like, I wonder how, as this technology like Disruptal, and I think maybe we should kind of like explain to users, to, to listeners rather, how, it, how people would interact with Disruptal and stuff like that. But as more technology kind of like encroaches into TVs and other devices, you kind of realize how important it is. Well, maybe you can answer this is how important is it for the processors and things like that within the hardware to be up to spec? Like a smartphone has immense processors, you know, the, the, the Apple, etc., Samsung work tirelessly on on building processes. That means that you, your phone works quickly. TVs, I don't know whether that's even a thing that kind of features into in the spec of TVs, the processor, but I know that my TV is a decent TV. I've only had it, not even a year, I've had it six months. And even now when I turn it on and I'll try and hit the home button to scroll over to YouTube or Spotify or something like that, there's lag, there's delays, it takes a couple of seconds for it to boot up. And so either the RAM or the processor or something is, is not quite kind of what you'd expect compared to a smartphone. Do you hit these limitations of hardware when you're working with your technology or is it, is your technology light enough for that not to be a problem? Well, that's, that's something that we have to ensure it's, it's, it's compatible with all of our processing happens server side uh, beyond the, the speech to text can either happen on device or, you know, they can send us an audio file, but you know, the, the, you know, computing intensive parts of the processes all happen server side, which is really important. Cause like you said, Typically, these TVs don't have massive GPUs or, or processors in them. And, um, you know, the manufacturers and operating systems are very careful about the load that they're putting on them. And they certainly don't want a new feature 
to come at the expense of, you know, other parts of the user experience in terms of speed and performance. So making sure that we're compatible with whatever hardware they have, you know, even if it's a, a TV from several years ago, it's, it's important that, you know, we can work across all devices. Mm. And then, so, so setting back slightly then for the people that have, again, not come across Disruptor before, what would it be like for them to interact with Disruptor's technology on a TV? So what would an example of a, of a kind of use case be? So I'll start off with um, kind of the first phase, at least for the, the TCL uh, unveiling that we recently had. So we're, we're integrating our smart screen platform which uh, you press a button and you can see information about the on-screen actors, actresses, and the content, what else they've been in, recommended content. You can kind of think of it as similar to Amazon X-Ray on Prime Video, if you're familiar, except the key differentiation is that our technology is running in real time. It's not pre-processing and indexing these videos ahead of time. So instead of just operating on a small subset of content, it can operate on anything throughout history, and this is what enables it to be at the operating system level, uh, creating a consistent user experience, you know, wherever the content may be coming from. Now, in terms of voice, um, we call this the world's first voice assistant that can see. And so you can ask questions about what you're watching, access supplemental information and purchase products that appear on screen. So a couple example use cases, you could say, uh, who is that guy? You know, where else have I seen him? What else has he been in? Or you could pick out specific visual entities. Who's the guy on the left? Who's the guy in the black suit? Who's the woman in the red dress? I want to buy that red dress. Anything that requires um, contextual awareness about the on-screen visual entities, that's what we're trying to enable. And that's where the, the traditional assistants like Alexa and Google Assistant uh, have fallen short, in my opinion. And this is uh, really helpful for a lot of things. But uh, starting out, I think that TV and entertainment content is a, is a great domain and stepping stone for us. Mm. underserved as well isn't it because a lot of that second screening can happen while you're watching something and the thing that you're doing on that second screen is trying to find out something about the thing that you're watching what was that film that tom hanks was in again you know what's it and you, all of a sudden your phone's popping up and you know, sometimes you might ask alexa things like that whereas having the context as part of the kind of like experience and not needing to switch screens and not needing to pull up another device is uh, yeah, a massive gap as far as most TV platforms are concerned. Because as you say, most of them don't know what content on screen are the best of times. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, we've got a question from, is it a question from Richard? Part of the challenge, perhaps the largest is creating some sort of base language that can understand commands or gestures that can capture the meaning of, the shirt being worn by the guy second from the left. What is that part of the vision of what you're creating? So is there a kind of like baseline language model that you have, or do you need to create a, a new language model for every new piece of content? And how, how do you approach the kind of language modeling side of, of that? Presumably it all, it all depends on the data that you've got behind the scenes, does it? Well, I mean, we've, we've really approached this as a framework of um, a, a barrage of different machine learning models, each responsible for their respective part of the process. So um, some of this is obviously um, taking in the original natural language input and kind of seeing w which part of this is relevant, you know, to what we're going to need to see. Like, what, is this related to on-screen content? If so, 
what parts of it, what are they describing? What are they picking out? What do they want to know about? And, um, you know, really part of our core competency is being able to meld uh, vision with language and um, making the two make sense because there's a certain point in our process where we are given a natural language input and we have to arrive at a vision-based output. But of course the process doesn't stop there because, you know, once you've shifted the attention to that particular person or object, you have to then identify them using another model, which varies based on, you know, what it is that you're picking out. And then uh, after all that, you know, new kind of infrastructure is done, you have to do what regular voice assistants do in terms of, you know, information retrieval, whether that's finding the intent, pulling up uh, a database value out of the knowledge graph, retrieving natural language text that answers the question. So there's a, a framework of things that happen and, um, you know, really being able to make sense of vision and language at the same time is part of that process. Mm, interesting. So when you're working on something like, um, we don't have to go into the specific details of TCL, but like, let's say that in a, in a hypothetical situation or other things that you've worked on in the past, do you need to create this language model, visual kind of like uh, understanding these knowledge graphs you've mentioned is this a manual creation for every single piece of content that Disruptal will feature on top of? No. And um, that's like, like I said, we are, at least I am very against pre-processing content ahead of time. I'm just not very interested in it because um, that's not scalable. I, I really do view this kind of as a search engine where everything is happening in real time. We certainly have knowledge graphs that are, you know, being expanded every single day. Um, but, but, how it works is it's not based on each particular piece of content. We have the underlying uh, knowledge graphs. We have indexes of actors and actresses that, you know, we constantly update. So if, you know, there's a new actor or actress that's appearing in something for the first time, essentially as soon as they gain a web presence, they're added into the system to be able to compare against in the future, uh, kind of same process for objects and products. And then uh, just like a search engine, we're aggregating from a variety of different sources and it's autonomously staying up to date. If there's a new piece of content uh, that, that's coming out, that's added in, but it's not actually doing that frame by frame pre-processing like all of our predecessors before us. This is running in real time and it's not something that requires any manual intervention. We're always seeing how we can improve it, but in terms of the updating and the additions to the system itself, that's, that's autonomous. Interesting. So you're pooling data from a bunch of different sources and pairing that data together with what your kind of like ML model is interpreting by what's on screen and also what the utterance is from the user and kind of like bringing it all together. Is that right? Correct. Wow. Interesting. What? How did you approach the, the, the language model side of it then? What have you got? What have you done? Have you kind of like thought you know, create this kind of like language model that is based on all of the things that people are likely to ask about things like the guy on the left, the girl on the left, the red dress, the blue dress, the pink dress, the, you know, the trousers, the car, uh, the dog. Have you kind of like done a load of deep work in trying to figure out what are most of the things that people are going to want to know about based on this content? Or is it a bit more dynamic than that, whereby it kind of makes an assumption and classifies an utterance and then goes away and figures out what to do with it? Is, is, is the language model pre, pre-designed or is all of that kind of done in real time as well? So originally we started off with a narrower scope. We, we understood that 
the most common use case would be asking about, you know, like where, where else have I seen that guy? Who is he? Um, so they were going to be asking about people. So uh, originally we just needed to make sure that we could bridge uh, language and vision as it comes to referencing um, people, uh, visual entities that are people. Uh, after we kind of proved out that concept, we realized this, this framework works and it can be um, extensible into new domains. And so then it was our responsibility to make sure that our uh, language and vision capabilities um, could be more, more generalized across, you know, all the different categories of people, objects, products, unseen classes. Um, and so that was a focus of ours needed to be able to um, now move beyond just people. And then once you have that capability, you need to make sure that you can identify whatever class that was. So we expanded into objects and then we did product recognition. And recently we added um, animal breed recognition. So you can now say like, what, what, you know, what type of dog is that? It's a, it's a German shepherd. And so we've, you know, continued to expand into more and more domains and kind of our, our generalized approach with this is very helpful. And now any new domain that we want to enter is essentially just uh, one neural net deploy away from, you know, working in that new domain. Wow. Interesting. And how, so this works then the vo- on the voice side, this will work from someone speaking into their remote control. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Fair enough. And what, what's the gesture control part of it? Then you said that's related to voice as well. Yeah. So gesture, um, I, I really think we had a unique approach on this. So just to set some context, um, lots of the TV manufacturers tried gesture control back in like 2012, 2013, uh, LG did it, Samsung, um, and still people are doing it today, but there were a couple things that I think were flawed in their approach. And there's, there's two main things. One is that they, their methods required that the camera is always on. So it's always analyzing its physical environment. So if you have a TV in your living room or your bedroom, just know that the camera is always watching you. The second part is it's kind of difficult to distinguish if there are multiple people in a room, which one is the one that wants to interface with this. So you need some sort of pattern recognition to say, hey, it's, it's this person. Sometimes they would, you know, do a hand wave. On some of them, you'd walk up to the TV, do some, you know. But by the time you do all that, you'd rather have just picked up the remote. And so our approach is using this technology called acoustic source localization, which is just triangulating where a sound came from. This is standard in most of the Alexa devices. If you say Alexa, you may notice that the light actually shines in your direction. The, the LED will light up. And that's the same technology that we're using for this, but we're combining that with a video stream. So in short, you could have, you know, 20 of your friends, a lot of, you know, very popular person. You have a big couch, 20 friends on one big couch, (laughs) right? And you could say, hey, TV. And it would pick you out of all of your friends. It would know that you're you're the one that wants to interface with it. So it'd start tracking your hand movements, which would be instantly be reflected on the display. And because that, um, process was catalyzed by the wake word, that means that the camera can be uh, default off. It's, it's, it's default mode is always off unless the user prompts it. And so this, in our opinion, is a great method that addresses both of these key issues. Interesting. So it's a combination of wake word detection that opens the camera, then presumably the camera, the mics will be able to tell where the voice is coming from. So therefore the camera can focus in a specific direction and location. Then you right. can do things like swiping and doing whatever it is. Exactly. And once something's played, the camera turns off again. Is that how it works? Yes. And, and that's kind of goes, to, you know, we can't give too much away here, but there's mm. kind of a long-term vision 
Uh, like I said, we don't think that the, the iPhone moment happened, but what's really beautiful about combining this method of uh, gesture control with our voice platform is that the, the wake word catalyst, the wake word catalyst catalyzes both of those processes. So if you say, Hey TV, what else has the guy on the left been in? The second you raise your hand, it will instantly, you'll instantly be able to swipe throughout, you know, the films that he's appeared in because Hey TV started both the voice query and the gesture control. So it's instantly looking for you to interface once that visual response is pulled up on your TV. Wow. Interesting. It's weird because TVs, most people have a TV, don't they? There's probably every house likely has a TV. And these days, a lot of people have fairly big TVs. But it's really strange how mobile phones since 20, what is it, 2007, have just been on this like meteoric rise. You could call it incremental. You know, the last 10 years, it's kind of been incremental. But if you look at the iPhone 13 Pro and compare that to the iPhone 4G, it's just worlds apart. It's miles apart. And TVs have gone on that kind of journey as well, but mainly from a kind of like size, thinness, and picture side of things. It's strange how TVs haven't, kind of converged with mobile phones a little bit more and became like these big touchscreen supercomputers? Is it because the interface itself needs cracking, which is kind of what you're on a path to do? Or is there other things at play, do you think, that have maybe prevented the TV from becoming this like, you know, supercomputer in your living room with touch, voice, gesture, all kinds of capabilities? Well, I think you're correct. There, there needs to be some innovation on the interface side, but I think the manufacturers have really kind of viewed it as, you know, TV traditionally is a lean back experience where um, people are just watching and, and not really interacting as much. But there's a couple, you know, there, that's not all there is to the story because the vast majority of people are already, you know, engaging in this consumer behavior of using the secondary device to interact with their content. They're just not doing it natively. Um and second, there's been some engagement declines in terms of, you know, like Gen Z compared to the previous generations. It's kind of, you know, less and less viewing. They're, they're doing their um, viewing on, on, you know, mobile devices. And so I think that they're, you know, everyone wants thinner bezels. Everyone wants great resolution and, and vivid colors. So I, I think that's great. But um, I think that we have a little bit of ways to go on on the, the UI and, and how people interface with their displays. And I think that, um, you know, it's it's been left a little bit lacking for the younger generations. Mm. Yeah, and I think the way that people are using TV is changing as well. Like The way I use my TV now is entirely different to what it was five years ago. One is probably the advent of a child, <laughs> which definitely changes, certainly changes the content that you're watching. Um, but also, I tend to, you know how people use their phone in, in moments throughout the day? I almost do the same thing with the TV. So after I come back from a run in the morning, I'll have it on for like 15 minutes, which I'll, I'll just I'll do some stretching and stuff like that. So I'm on YouTube there trying to find something that's no longer than 15 minutes. And at that moment in time, I'm, I'm on the floor stretching out or whatever. And so when something's mentioned and stuff like that, there's no way of getting more information. I'll give you a prime example. I was watching, I can't remember what it was now. I was watching something uh, yesterday morning and they mentioned this book, and I can't even remember the title of this book, but I've added it onto my Amazon thing afterwards. But it would have been great for me to say, you know, with my voice, someone's talking about this book. What book is that? Oh, cool. 
there it is, overlay Amazon. Right, okay, add that to my basket. You know, these, so I think that, and I don't know if it's just me, I, I definitely can't be that the way that people are interacting with TV is definitely changing. And this kind of technology is, is, one of the enablers is going to allow people to use TV in a, in a more contemporary way. 100%. Interesting. We've got a question from Richard again. Oh, not a question, just a comment. This discussion around both gestures and voice happening simultaneously reminds us more why a base language lies at the foundation of what needs to be developed. A head, nod, and yes need to be considered as the same thing at some base level. All right, okay. So, so is that how you kind of approach it in terms of pairing together gestures and language? Is that if someone goes like this, it's the same as them vocalizing swipe left, or if someone goes like that, it's the same as them saying yes or something like that? Do you have any parity between the gestures and the voice side of things? Um, I, I'm not sure I understand the the comment exactly, um, but these are these are kind of um, distinct for now. I'm mm-hmm. I'm sorry if I'm misunderstanding this, Richard. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Uh, so I wonder if we can get into some of that. So the use case I kind of touched on there was around there's a let's say that someone's discussing a book or someone drives past in a certain car and, and you want to ask about what that is. So obviously there's a comments a commerce kind of angle to this sort of thing. I'm wondering whether we can whether you can elaborate on how some of those commerce-based use cases come to life. Uh, so commerce, there's there's two main genres of commerce use cases, and that is purchasing products that appear on screen, whether that's prim- well, primarily fashion, um, house appliances, cars, like you said. And then this, the second one is the ever-growing field of sports betting. Some people feel different ways about this, but um, just like everything else, that is um, a commercial transaction that is derived from the original content being consumed, which, um, you know, I think TV manufacturers, uh, OSs, streaming services, they would love to capture that value directly uh, to monetize that. And you can see people, I mean, lots of people are moving this space, you know, Fubo TV launched um, kind of their, their watch and bet feature um, where it, it kind of syncs the experience with a secondary mobile device. Um, and so if you know what's happening on the screen and, you know, there's a desire to purchase something, you should, you know, enable that experience. I don't think that commerce, you know, for us advertising, which we can get into is, is the big monetization opportunity here. That's probably like, you know, 80 to 90% of, you know, the, the big value that we see, I think commerce will be a smaller part of that, but something that should absolutely be enabled for the consumer. So how, so how would advertising work then? So our approach to advertising is we have intelligence that we can see about the on-screen content that can be used to contextually target the ads without coming at the expense of consumer privacy. So if we see a plane or a train, we can serve a travel ad. If we see um, you know, a, a dog that's on screen, we can serve a Purina pet food ad. And this doesn't have to be tied to that user identity. It can if a partner would want, but you know, for us, this is all about making the you know experience better for the consumer and not being invasive on their privacy. And people, I, I hate commercial breaks. The traditional CTV ad pods where they like pull you out of your content for four or five, six, sometimes more minutes at a time. That's extremely intrusive to me, and I think a lot of other people feel that same way. So wherever there's opportunities to monetize these um, 
experiences and less intrusive ways where instead of pulling you out, maybe it's just, you know, a, a small overlay that only covers a portion of the screen and they're all user initiated. So if you do not explicitly ask for this information, we're not part of your life. And I think that's how it should be. Mm. There is, I don't know what the streaming services are like in the US, but in the UK, ITV has what's called the ITV hub. And it's all of, ITV is a TV network and it's all their content on this hub, right? And it is the worst experience you could ever possibly imagine. This is how it works. You open ITV hub, you'll find something you want to watch, you'll press play, and you will sit through, I would say, four to five minutes worth of ads before something starts. All the way through the program, you can see on the timeline below that there is three different ad breaks, one quarter of the way through, halfway through, and three quarters of the way through. Now, if you're in the middle of watching something on demand, right? So let's say that you're watching a program, you get to or right close to an ad break, right? And then you stop watching it. And then the next day you come back, you open up ITV Hub, you start playing the content. It plays the default reel of ads that it always plays before it starts any content. The content starts and immediately, <laughs> immediately it will throw you into another five minute ad break. It doesn't recognize that you've just had an ad break and spare you that second one. It throws you into it. It is the worst experience ever. So I'm all for <laughs> a better placement of ads. Yeah. I mean, ad pods, video ad pods are not going away, certainly. But it's this is kind of the issue is these guys, they need to monetize the experiences. But how do you do that in a way that's um, not so disruptive and you know doesn't cause like increased churn? So it's, it's a balancing act and that's where I think we can be helpful. So we'd, we'd love to work with those guys and, you know, all the other streaming services to create better experiences for customers. Mm. How do you, how do you prioritize on the advertising front? It's easy, not easy, <laughs> very difficult, but I can, I can understand the logic is what I'm trying to say of, let's say that someone's on a plane, you can show a travel ad or someone's on the train, you can show a travel ad or you, maybe you recognize the skyline and you recognize the Eiffel Tower and so you can serve up Eiffel Tower, uh, Paris trips or whatever. That's different though to the potential mindset that the, and the context that the user might be in. So because something is displayed on screen, might not necessarily mean that the user is interested in that particular thing. So is what you meant by being relevant and non-intrusive that somebody would need to ask about the content and then the ad would be served to them? Or is it that it will contextually recognize what's on screen, show like a little pop-up in the corner, which is like flights to Paris, show a little pop-up in the corner, which is like, you know, a test drive in Aston Martin. Is it that kind of stuff or is it all has to be asked for explicitly? Yeah, we're, we're not doing the prompts um, at, at this point. It's it's all has to be initiated by the user. So whether they um, press the button on, on their remote or they ask a, a voice query, uh, to, you know, that, that Disrupt would handle. In only those cases would they see an advertisement. Uh, it's certainly within our capabilities to, to do the, the secondary one that you mentioned. But um, at this point, we're not doing that. Yeah. One of the things, so we, we've we've discussed voice and the TV a number of times before, and we had uh, Patrick Burden and Charles Dawson on from um, TiVo, and we were talking about the the general kind of concept of voice as an interface layer for TVs. Now, Disruptor, you're focusing specifically on the, the content itself and being able to see the content and make that content more relevant and therefore, you know, have people interact with that. That content 
what so I suppose what I'm trying to get to is that you've got content, let's say, in an app like a Netflix or a you know wherever it might be, and then you've got the interface layer of the TV itself. And so, for example, someone might say to their TV, "Play Netflix or open Netflix or play this show on Hulu or whatever." And then when they get into that application, they can utilize the disruptal capabilities to to query the content and stuff like that. Is is the kind of like I suppose disruptals um, technology or your strategy about eventually becoming that interface layer? Are you specifically looking at purely the content engagement layer? We're really focused on um, visually relevant queries at, at this point. We're, we're not trying to compete with the traditional voice assistants. We think Google Assistant, Alexa, and others do a fine job and should probably, you know, continue as, as the basis assistants. You know, we're, we're just focused on this area, but, um, you know, we want to work in unison with these assistants, not, not looking to replace them. Because mm. one of the challenges that, that the TiVo guys were highlighting is that you've got an interface layer across the whole operating system. So, for example, uh, turn off subtitles or turn on subtitles or open YouTube or whatever. This is like, these are kind of like turn the volume up, turn the TV off. These are like uh, high level operating system wide functionalities. But one of the challenges that they identified was that that's fine when you work at that operation operation uh, operation system level. But when you get into the individual app level, there can be a bit of a disconnect. Like, for example, if you say open YouTube, but then YouTube doesn't have any voice capabilities, you're then having to switch back to the remote and stuff like that. I'm wondering whether you've had any similar sort of challenges when it comes to kind of implementing your technology? Have you had any challenges around the integration of different components in the TV or any other sort of challenges that you have kind of come across that you've had to overcome? I mean, this is a unique challenge in general for us because we are in the position where we have to have a lot of different parties that traditionally don't work together to, to work together in complete unison. So we're bringing together, you know, hardware uh, we're bringing together streaming services, advertisers, and your your question was uh, around streaming services. So, you know, making this a consistent experience that's not jarring or, um, you know, um, unexpected to the user like that that's important, and that requires cooperation with the streaming services. So, with TCL and with any other deals, how it typically works is we can. Uh, we can have our capabilities run on anything that's plugged in via HDMI. So if you have like a cable set-top box or, or something like that, we can run on that content. We can run on like the TCL channel or anything that our partner owns. And then uh, streaming services have to opt in on an individual basis, um, which, you know, they're, they're incentivized by the sharing of the economics of, you know, ad revenue and others. Um, you know, but once we're in, we have to make sure that that, this functionality not only works beautifully and seamlessly from the operating system, but also what is the behavior like within your app? Is it compatible with, you know, your, your video player controls? Do you have voice functionality um, already? Do you, do you, you know, so these, these are questions that, um, you know, have to be answered and it has to be done in a, in a way that's friendly for the consumer. And we have, you know, several great relationships with uh, streaming services. So, David Gandler from Fubo is one of our advisors, and and we have a lot of other people 
throughout the space, um, some leading streaming services that are either investors or advisors of ours. So, Interesting. So, so it's Disruptal then is, is operating at the operation system level in terms of, so on a TC, TC, uh, LTV, for example, it will be, you know, if you're watching normal, te- normal TV channels, it'll work there. Skipping a YouTube, it'll work there. Skipping a Netflix, it'll work there. If, if they opt in, I'm from a technology yeah. perspective, we're agnostic of where the content comes from, but, um, for the apps that are downloaded through a store, there's contractual obligations, not to screen grab and, and other stuff, unless these partners explicitly opt in. Um, so like YouTube, Netflix, they, they would have to opt into this deal. Um, yeah. which is, you know, part of, part of our, um, you know, goal as a company is to bring more and more of these guys in to, you know, get broad coverage across the TV experience. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean that it would work out of the box. I meant that that's kind of the potential then it's oh, yeah. what, what yeah. I was trying to get to. It's, it's not like an app specific piece of kit. It's broadly horizontal, potentially across the whole TV experience. Exactly. Wow. That's that's why the real time processing is so important because if we if we did the pre processing, I mean, really the only way that that can be successful is is like you see on Prime Video where in a closed ecosystem on a subset of content. So it it really kind of needs to be um, set up this way to enable the OS. Interesting. So you mentioned there that other streaming providers might have their own you know, voice capabilities. So, you know, YouTube's got like a voice search and SoundHound recently announced a partnership with Netflix where SoundHound will do all of Netflix's kind of like content finding and you'll be able to order pizzas while you're watching films and stuff like that all through the SoundHound assistant. Not doing anything to this degree of um, complexity. So how would a relationship in theory, hypothetically speaking, between Netflix using SoundHound and Disruptal work, would you be looking for some, is this where the kind of like interoperability standards might come into play where it might be a different wake word or one assistant will take a query and then hand it off to another based on what it's related to? Or generally speaking, how, how would you see Disruptal working in an app that already has voice capabilities that does something different? To put it simply, there are many different ways that this could be set up and likely it would be set up however the business restrictions allowed it to. But what I think of it through is the lens of the consumer. You want to make it very simple. And so let's say that this was a direct integration with uh, Netflix where SoundHound um, is currently already working and, and developing features for like we would, for the consumer, that would probably be, be most seamless through that, that same interface. So they're not really seeing like two different, um, you know, explicit uh, voice assistants that are, you know, separate from each other. They would, they would probably want that as one continuous experience that just adds these features. And, you know, they don't know that it's, you know, multiple different parties that are providing these services and functionalities. Mm, Interesting. I suppose that makes the, if you're operating at that horizontal level and have the potential to operate in lots of different apps and stuff like that, providing these other providers are opted in and everything's all kosher and stuff like that. How would you approach the advertising from an advertiser's perspective? Would it be similar to, you know, I don't know how, how Google kind of works, whereby there's a bidding situation and all the travel companies would bid to have adverts placed in scenes with, you know, travel based situation. Is that how you're thinking about it? Is like an advertising marketplace basically that would place ads across all of the different streaming services whenever the relevant moments occur. Yeah, these are programmatically auctioned off. I mean, you can do direct, um, you know, ad deals with uh, various brands and, and that's something that, that we're doing. But um, 
you know, you certainly want to be able to tap into the programmatic demand and, and hook into the various exchanges. And we have, again, a lot of expertise. So we raised, um, you know, our, our pre-seed round last year, and we quickly added uh, Ben Zach, who comes from Roku's ad platform. And we have uh, Mike Baker, who is the founder of DataZoo, which was acquired by Roku and became their ad platform. So, um, you know, in the programmatic uh, TV ad space, we've, you know, continued to um, bring leaders and people that can push our vision forward and kind of give us guidance on on how to best go about this stuff. So we have a lot of, you know, the top expertise in this particular area. Mm. And you are advised by Adam Chaya on the voice front as well, founder of Siri, founder of Viv, absolute legend in the voice space. Like one of the, he is, he's one of the few people on the planet who has, I would say probably maybe what, maybe the, the only perhaps uh, person who has built two fully capable, well-rounded assistants that have both been sold to massive corporations. Yeah. He's just an absolute. Adam <laughs> is great. And, and like the fact that it doesn't end there, you know, change.org, some others. And what's just funny to me is then you type his name on YouTube and like, it's not even that stuff. Like it, it's, it's the magic, you know, the Penn and Teller search results, like to the rest <laughs> of the world, he's known even more for other things, but you know, in the voice space, he's a legend. Yeah, he is. He is. So, so how did you approach kind of bringing in all of this kind of talent and advisory board like what is it that they all kind of thoroughly absolutely believe in the product obviously they must do but like what's your approach being to surrounding yourself with all of these kind of like you know really super experienced high level kind of practitioners and all that kind of stuff yeah i'll be very open about this i i really just for i think every person on our advisory board we i just cold you know messaged on linkedin um, like not, not even email, it was LinkedIn, but in Adam's case, I think he was driving to like LA or somewhere in California at a couple, you know, free hours. And so he, he said I could give him a call and, um, you know, I, I explained the vision where we were and, you know, visually aware voice assistance is something that he, you know, and, and his team previously had always envisioned. It was just a matter of, you know, when, and so this is a vision that he liked and, and, really it's up to us to kind of prove that we're serious and that we can be the ones to do it. And, um, you know, he, he, he got it. And it's, it's been so great to have him on with all of his experience, expertise. Um, he's been incredibly helpful. Mm. He's just, he operates on a different time scale. I think he just, he's like, he's, he's from the future. I think that's probably how I would sum it up. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. So, so voice assist- so the voice capability is one thing. The computer vision is another thing. Voice assistants that can see and sell. But you also mentioned last time we spoke that there is potentially an augmented reality component to this stuff as well. Yeah, um, this is not limited to just within a screen. Uh, at the end of the day, our computer vision systems have been trained on people, objects, products, and um, recognizing them in the screen or in the real world uh, really makes no difference to them. And so we're excited about these opportunities instead of saying like, uh, you know, how much does that red dress cost? Imagine walking down the street, you know, with, you know, augmented reality glasses that are disruptive enabled looking at an apartment building and saying, you know, how much does rent go for here using geolocation as the context and, you know, doing the visual matching on the building rather than um, let's say a person or an object or traditional landmark, like, this is right up our alley and, and something that we're excited about. So I think that 
you know, you'll, you'll see us move, you know, from beyond just in screen to kind of, you know, real world functionality. Mm, interesting. It must be, it must be a complex thing to set up because you're working with a lot of different components. You've got vision, you've got language, you've got gesture, then you've got data sitting at the back end. What's been the most challenging part of pulling all of that stuff together? I don't, I don't know if I can name just one particular thing. I will just say that, you know, things are always harder than you think, but this was so incredibly tough to, to like you said, there's three main components. There's vision, there's language, bridging the two, and then there's data on every single piece of content throughout history, every single actor, actress, high profile, you know, person. So just the amount of work that goes into creating all of these things so they can work in unison and accomplish, you know, our objectives, but then continue to stay up to date and, and, you know, by itself, always maintain, you know, 99.8, 99.9% of content coverage. I mean, there's just so many different pieces that need to work excellent together that, um, it just, it was a lot harder than I, than I thought. But, um, in, in my opinion, the framework that we've created is, is beautiful and, and accomplishes everything, but just a lot of different pieces, you know, to put together. And, you know, when we were starting the machine learning models weren't as accurate, face recognition wasn't as good. Speech recognition wasn't as good intent matching open domain question answering. All of these things have made massive advances in just the last couple of years. So I would say just building it is very hard. And then if, if I was working just a couple of years ago on this, I mean, even, even harder, luckily we have, um, you know, great research that's, that's gone on and a lot of, um, you know, academics and people in the field pushing, pushing it forward. Mm, interesting. Is it all, is it all proprietary then? Is it all, all the technology proprietary or is some of it kind of like either off the shelf or cloud-based or how did you approach that? I mean, it's, it's a mix. So we, we try mm-hmm. to own, you know, everything in house to, you know, run, run our own code. The only external dependency that we have is like the speech recognition. Maybe we'll use uh, DeepGram since they're a sponsor. There you go. Um, but, um, you know, we, when we can, we'll take, you know, state of the art models. If really we just look at it very simply, does this achieve our objective? If yes, we'll use it. If no, we'll find something else. We'll make something else. We'll modify something. So we're, we're really like a, a barista creating, you know, this novel combination of all these different components. And on an individual component basis, it's either good enough or it's not. And mm-hmm. so we'll, we'll create it. We'll take something open source it, you know, whatever gets it done. Mm. You've got to have, I remember when we spoke to, um, we spoke to the Moxie team around multimodal design, Stefan Scherer, and they, they basically built their own tooling to be able to design Moxie. Moxie, I don't know if you know about it, it's this little house robot and this little figure that can see and it looks at you and it can speak. It's for kids to teach them emotional awareness and stuff. They had to build a platform to be able to design this thing because it, it can talk, it can listen, but also when it responds, it needs to move its mouth, it needs to act, its face needs to act in a certain way. Um, and also when it's listening, it needs to be able to you know use its face to, to indicate that it's listening. And they kind of, one of the problems or challenges rather that they had was that because it's multimodal and you can speak to it and it can speak back, but it, it's also got you know, gaze detection and, and all this kind of like facial emissions. One of the hard parts was basically bringing it all together in, in sufficient sync 
so that the parts weren't lagging and that it actually felt like everything comes together in harmony. Is that part of what the challenge is as well for you? Is that you've got all this kind of stuff, retrieving data, speech recognition, NLU, you know, uh, visual kind of like machine learning, um, you know, image recognition. Is that part of the challenge is bringing it all together so that it performs at the speed and in harmony that it needs to for the interface to actually work in a natural way? Yeah, I mean, you're working with dozens of machine learning models and at least in our case, um, you know, latency, and I'm sure for their case, is is a huge um, priority for us to make sure that we have fast responses. Um, You know, for us personally, we're ensuring that all responses are answered in a second or less, and we plan to cut that in half and, um, you know, continue from there. So being able to kind of coordinate this orchestra of ML models and make it respond in an appropriate amount of time, that's, you know, that's key. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's it's a noble noble quest, and uh, I can imagine it being a very challenging one as well. What are you looking forward to in in the future in terms of either the stuff that you're working on, or where do you think this kind of stuff's heading? Like, what's your what's your vision for for the future of Disruptal? Well, I'm super excited to kind of show the public finally our our products with the TCL launch, expand to additional partners. Um, but then also kind of the, the longer term vision stuff. That's what really excites me putting all of this together in, um, you know, one, one product that is, you know, truly smart TV that includes visual awareness, smart screen, and then gesture control as the mode of interface for interacting with it. So that's, that's really what I'm excited about. And, um, you know, our team just, there's, there's no end to the ideas that we have. And, you know, I just, I love the field of machine learning. Mm, it's interesting. I think that obviously the ideas are one thing, but what's good is that you're putting things together to solve the now. So it's nice to talk about augmented reality and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think that we can sometimes get carried away with where everything is going, but being able to execute on something now based on the needs that you see arising is is even more important. So I think it's uh, it's nice to have both, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. And you can't just be working on a vision. We have to, you know, making sure that these things make sense from a business perspective and are coming to market. So I think that we're, we're balancing those two well. Mm, Nice. Wicked. Well, Alex, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Where can people go to learn a bit more and find out more about Disruptal? Disruptal.com. Sign up for our email notifications. Feel free to reach out on, you know, LinkedIn or email or anything else. Nice. Looking forward to it. Do you have any time scales on the TCL thing or is that all uh, hush hush? You'll you'll see it this year. I'll I'll just say that. Nice. Wicked. Looking forward to that. Okay. I, I, I have to go and find myself a TCL TV then now because uh yeah, this Samsung one. I'm sure Samsung have fantastic TVs, but this one in particular, um T pitch is good, but it's just the lag that frustrates me. It takes like five minutes to boot up and it's only six months old. So yeah, I'm in the market for a TCL with disruptor enabled. Sounds good. <laughs> nice one. Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, do check out disruptal.com for more information. Go and buy yourself a TCL TV <laughs> in uh, 2023. And uh, also do subscribe to VUX world uh, vux.world forward slash subscribe to get all of our podcasts all of our interviews with immense talented practitioners like alex uh, and you will never miss an episode you will get all of our insights Uh, and also if you're on linkedin as many of you are uh, do subscribe to our newsletter 
Uh, it's called Conversational AI and NLP every single week. In fact, it's been multiple times a week covering topics uh, throughout the NLP landscape. And uh, it's been it's been doing pretty well, so do subscribe there. And don't forget, March the 9th, uh, the Google CCAI webinar with myself and Servion. We're going to be walking you through how to put together a proper strategy, how to avoid the pitfalls that many people get involved with when they try and implement CCAI, design best practice, and we'll walk you through how to build your first CCAI bot. So do check that out. Go to my LinkedIn or subscribe to the newsletter and you get all the details. Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank thank you. you all for tuning in. Thank you very much. Cheers. Right. Speak soon.